Let's now turn in our Bibles to Isaiah 66. Come to the end of the second largest book in the Scriptures. Isaiah began this book about 10 years ago. We wrap it up this morning. Isaiah 66. Please stand with me and let's read verses 12 through 24. Isaiah 66 and verse 12. For thus says the Lord... Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. And then you shall feed, on her side shall you be carried, and by dandled on her knees as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and his indignation to his enemies For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination in the mouth, shall be consumed together, says the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues And they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and those among them who escape I will send to the nations, to Tarshish and Pol and Lud, who draw the bow and Tubal and Javan to the coastlands afar off, who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all nations on horses And in chariots and litters, on mules, on camels, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. As the children of Israel bring an offering and a clean vessel into the house of the Lord, and I also will take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before you, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Amen. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It enlightens us. It gives us your will for us. It teaches us of your salvation. And it shows us your glory. Father, we pray this morning that you would reveal this to us in a new way. Pray for your Spirit's work in this congregation today by your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this is the end of Isaiah, and it does look somewhat like the end of the book of Revelation, doesn't it? This is the end of the prophecy of the prophet Isaiah, given roughly 700 B.C., 700 years before Jesus was born. So here we have the final crescendo, the end of the story, the resolution to the story, or the resolution to all of the world's problems. So all of this comes to resolution, come to the very end of the book, and we see again a prophetic intensity. God's Word is, has an intensity to it. We see a starkness in terms of this contrast. And we'll look at the contrast in this final chapter of Isaiah this morning. It's just hard to miss the intensity of it, isn't it? The language speaks of heaven and hell. And heaven and hell is presented in the Gospels as well. Our Lord speaks of both heaven and hell. The book of Revelation, as we read speaks of both heaven and hell, or the fire that is never quenched. And the prophets as well bring these things together. There are two very distinct realities presented here, very strong realities concerning final destinations, contrast between two groups of people. These are ultimate destinations. Will it be heaven or will it be hell? only two possible destinations for any one of us in this room. There is no purgatory, 
There's no middle ground. Jesus didn't say, oh yes, there's one other option for you. Jesus presents both heaven and hell for us, as does the prophet Isaiah here. So, this one destination is ultimately eternally and indescribably glorious, and the other is ultimately and unthinkably and eternally horrible. So, it's, it's the two possible destinations that are given to us here. Now, the idea of there being two different sorts of reality is not unfamiliar to anybody on earth. So, even unbelievers understand this. Unbelievers know that there are two realities. While there were people enjoying themselves on the beaches of Kauai, Maui was burning down, and a hundred people were burned and died in the fire. So these two contrasts are side by side. There are those who are enjoying vacation today on a beach somewhere in the world while there's hell-like conditions in the Gaza Strip. So again, it's not an unfamiliar thing that there are these two realities that sit side by side in this temporal world in which we live. We, we all know it. We, we, we can, you know, see the devastation, what's going on in the Gaza Strip, the babies slaughtered and such. And then the advertisement on the news site pictures somebody on a beach in the Bahamas. So again, we see these images of the two realities. People know it. They know their two realities. Very familiar with it. But all that the prophets give us here is that these, these two realities will play themselves out in eternity as well. That's all the prophets are saying here. There is this contrast. And, and there is this line that is drawn between the wicked and the righteous. Now again, the wicked understand this. Bob Dylan understands this. Will it be heaven? Will it be hell? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment? That terrible swift sword. Are you ready? Will it be heaven? Or will it be hell? Unbelievers understand this. And they ask the question, but then they immediately change the subject. That's how they deal with it. You have to change the subject. If you are an unbeliever, you can't face this. But as we're going to get into it this morning, we're going to find that believers absolutely do face these things. Jesus draws these lines between heaven and hell, sheep and goats, wheat and tares, the fruit bearers and the non-fruit bearers, the non-fruit bearing branches cast into the fire. The others are bearing the fruit and continue in the church of Jesus Christ. So you have, again, these two groups that Jesus keeps coming back to in his ministry. Sitting next to a man on a flight out of South Africa a couple of years ago, just some random businessman, and he told me he was from Wales. And I said, I know somebody from Wales, a man by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he said, oh, the hellfire and brimstone preacher. It wasn't really the first description I was thinking of. I think he did mention hell several times, I'm not very often, but when it came up in the passage, as it is today, I, you know, we have to deal with it. But, uh, but that he mentioned it several times in his ministry made him exceedingly unpopular to those who are unbelievers. See, they don't want to hear it. They want to laugh it off. They want to ignore it. They have hardwired mechanisms in their minds to avoid thinking about it. But again, I, I, I believe that every atheist and every unbeliever and even the embittered ones against God need to be honest and rational at points, at least just for a moment, that blaming God may be therapeutic or ignoring God may be therapeutic, but it doesn't dismiss the reality of it. Blaming God 
all the way to your dying breath and all the way into the flames of hell is not going to dismiss the reality of it. You can't dismiss the reality of death and hell. And blaming Adam doesn't do any good either. It's like the fellow who was on a bus down the Wolf Creek Pass with all the switchbacks and all the rest, and the bus is going faster and faster, and, and finally somebody realizes the bus driver is drunk, and the bus goes careening over the fence into a thousand-foot ravine, and as, as the bus is sinking down into total destruction, somebody's crying out, it's not fair, it's not fair. Tough bananas. You're still going down in the bus. You can blame Adam, you can blame the bus driver all day long, but that's not going to resolve the reality of it all. And that is the judgment of God that comes upon us and upon this, uh, this world for sin. So as Lahaina burns to the ground, it was the worst fire in 103 years of American history in terms of the number of people that was, were killed over a century, we haven't faced anything quite this bad. But as we see these things and the hellish conditions of war and the destruction of men, women, and children, and babies, uh, these are realities. These are stark realities that must be faced. And so we'll begin with the first stark reality, and we'll get to the other reality here in this passage. I'm going to start with this These verses, verses 14 through 17, first, the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and his indignation to his enemies, for behold, the Lord will come with fire, with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire, for by fire and by his sword the Lord will judge all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many, and those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouth shall be consumed together, says the Lord. So this is a reality. God is going to destroy certain peoples. And Jesus speaks of this and Revelation speaks of this. And here, this first group of people are characterized by two things. There are two categories within this category of those who are consumed. It is those who sanctify themselves. That is, these are the hypocrites. These are the self-righteous. These are the proud ones. Those who refuse to confess their sins and seek God for salvation. They clean themselves up outwardly. And this is where most world religions are all about this. That's all about the external cleansings. It's all about the making ourselves look good on the outside. It's all about our self-righteousnesses. And Paul, of course, considers these things to be filthy rags in Philippians chapter 3. And that's what it is to us. Is we confess our sins and, and, and confess that which we really are before God. We are, we are defiled from the inside all the way out. And there's no sense in pretending any of that. But these are those who are the proud Pharisees. And, and, and yet there's also those who are not so outwardly good that is, they're outwardly immoral. They are the abomination. They are those who eat the swine's flesh and so forth, speaking in the externally ceremonial way, but really speaking as to the outward expression of people's rebellion against God. So it's an outwardly obvious a problem with these, uh, this other group of people. And I would say to break it down into the categories of the proud Pharisees and the proud gays is the best way to do it because it's always pride. The, the, the proud gays are externally showing off all of their uncleanness to the entire world and they demonstrate that all around in every major nation or major city around the world today. And so these are the outwardly obviously wicked people and they're proud of their wickedness. So they show themselves in a very externally uh, demonstrative way. So, so you have the proud Pharisees and the proud publicans. Now the third category, of course, is the humble publican. The person that realizes that they have 
been sinning against God, that they are defiled on the outside as well as the inside, and they've cast themselves down on the ground and crying out to God, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So you've got the proud gays doing their marching, and then you have the proud Pharisees marching about as well, and uh, these are the ones that will be consumed together. They will burn in hell. That's what the Word of God tells us. The proud Pharisees and the proud gays will burn in hell. And then verse 24 says, the believers shall go forth. That is, we or the church or Zion shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So this again is a reference to what Jesus gives us in the Gospels. Uh, The worm that never dies and the fire that's never quenched, it is an eternal destruction. So as there is a fire that does burn people up in places uh, like Maui, so there will be a fire that will continue to burn forever and ever. And there's no way that we can see in Scripture that hell is anything but eternal. It is as eternal as heaven. The Bible speaks of heaven as being eternal eternal, that there is no end to that. And then the very same context says that hell or the burning of the fires will continue forever and ever as well. So we cannot equivocate on the word eternal in either case. If heaven is eternal, then hell is eternal as well. And I realize that there have been men like John Stott who softened the message about hell for the present generation. It's not a healthy thing to do. Uh, Certainly don't back away from the words of Jesus when it comes to something as critical as this message concerning hell. This is a form of corruption and destruction where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. Now, what does it mean in verse 24 where it says that the believers are going forth and looking upon the corpses? What does this mean? Well, what this means is that we preach on it on a Sunday. That we're not afraid to walk into this message and bring out what the very Word of God has to say. We're not embarrassed about it. Uh, We're not backing away from it. We're looking straight into the verse. And we're willing to honestly interact with the reality of hell. But the unbelievers are not willing to do this. They don't want to look at what is going on here in this passage. They, they pass over it. They can't face this reality, and they prefer to live in la-la land. But believers, again, are able to face the reality, look upon the corpses, and they see the hand of God's judgment. They see what happens to sin, that it gets burned and burned and burned and utterly destroyed. And death itself, every physical death is a result of man's sin, first with Adam and then with the rest of us. But, uh, but it's not a, a looking in dread. It's, again, it's the, the idea that we're going to dread it or we're going to, in some ways, panic and think of this as, as something that may affect us. No, we can't think of it that way at all. We come to it under the cross of Jesus Christ as those who have been brought into the family of God, as those who have received the grace of God. But we do view it with sobriety, with honesty, and with the same way that God looks at it. We won't hide from this. We're sober about it. And that's why sobriety so marks the people of God. I believe we have to train our young people in sobriety. There are some things we don't laugh at. We don't laugh at what's going on in Lahaina. We don't laugh at what, what's going on with all of the destruction in the war scene in the Middle East. We don't laugh at these things. We don't laugh at hell. We, we look at it in a sober way. We, we, we see it, yes, for what it really is. We see the judgment of God, the wrath of God upon sin. We see the unrighteous character of sin before us. And we will not hide from these realities behind sports and fantasy and movies and drunkenness and drugs and pretended reality of all sorts. We're just not going to do that. Why? Because because these things are real. What's going on in Lahaina, what happened in the Middle East is a real deal. Death is real. 
God is real, hell is real, and, and sin is a real sin against a real God, requiring a real atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. And Jesus was a real man, and really God, really the Son of God. And as sure as He created this entire universe, He came down and died on the cross for our sins, really and really. And we look at Jesus on the cross, in our place, and we, we look upon him with sobriety, with trembling, and with rejoicing, and with gratitude and praise, and all of that, of course, converging before the cross. And we do not back away from it. We're, we're attracted to it. We're not raising up excuses and avoiding the message, as so many unbelievers will do. We walk right into it, and we receive it, and we say amen to it, and then we say hallelujah to it. Uh, that's the response that we have to the message this morning, brothers and sisters. Okay, so that's the first of the stark contrasts. Now let's move on to a second stark contrast. Again, these are infinitely stark contrasts presented here today. But the second stark reality that we come face to face with this morning is what? It's the beautiful, absolutely beautiful state of affairs for the people of God. That is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I call these the seven beatific blessings of the people of God in the church. Seven blessings that come to the people of God in the church. So let's go through these quickly. First, uh, verse 12, for thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. So the first is the blessing of peace. Shalom. Peace like a river. Attendeth our way when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever our lot, thou hast taught us to say, it is well, it is well with our soul. It's, it's well. The peace like a river is coming into Zion, into the church. Of course, this is an individualistic idea. This is the corporate idea. So we're bringing a little more of a corporatistic feel to, the, to an individualistic hymn. But it's when peace like a river flows into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we experience this this uh, it's okayness and peace. The word shalom is not so much the the uh, the absence of war and strife. That's the way I think we see it, and that's part of it. Yes, but it's more of a well-being. In fact, the 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 the, the song "It Is Well with My Soul" I think is a good reflection of of what it is. That's it. It is is the idea that it's okay. It's well. Things are good here. Everything's turning out well in the church. That's the idea conveyed in the word shalom, that it is shalom, it is peace, it's, it's okay, it's, it's going to be prosperous, it's going to be sound, it's going to be well with the church of Jesus Christ. Things don't go well for Hollywood, for the Boy Scouts, and for the U.S. economy or something that's outside of the church of Jesus Christ. Certainly that which is set against the church of Jesus Christ. That which despises the church. Doesn't appreciate the church. Doesn't love the church. Rejects the church. That Things will not go well for that. But those that are within the church. Those that embrace the church. Those who love the church. Are those that will receive this amazing peace that flows like a river into the church. Let's move on to the second point, and that is the glory of the Gentiles come in like a flowing stream. Thus says the Lord, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed on her side, shall you be carried, be dandled on her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. We'll get back to that in just a moment, but I want to move on to number three. The church will experience good feeding and the comfort of God, the sense that God is there. God is with them. God's hand is upon them. God is comforting them with the ultimately, infinitely comfortable comfort of God. Then number four, the church will rejoice. Verse 14, when you see this, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. His hand is known to his servants always. The well-being of the church is the encouragement to the believers. And that the church, things are well with the church. The church responds with rejoicing. In fact, so many of the Ascent Psalms deal with this idea of the church rejoicing in the peace of God. Uh, Psalm 121, 122. Uh, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure 
who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your temples. Psalm 125, as for such as turn aside unto their crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them forth with the workers of iniquity, but peace shall be upon Israel. And then again, Psalm 128, the Lord shall bless thee out of Zion, and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yea, you shall see your children's children in peace upon Israel. So here it is. Again, the people of God experience amazing peace and wellness That makes sense because we know that God is with us. We know that this is the church of Jesus Christ. This is the body for whom he gave his body and his life. Move on to number five. The fifth blessing is that this worldwide church gathers. And this somewhat repeats what we said in the the second blessing as well. The worldwide church gathers, verses 18 through 21. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, those among them who escape. I will send to the nations, to Tarshish and Pul and Lud, who draw the bow and Tubal and Javan to the coastlands afar off, who have not heard my fame, nor seen my glory. They shall declare my glory among the Gentiles, and then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord. Out of all the nations, on horses and chariots and litters and mules and camels, to my holy mountain. Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord, I will also take of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. So this again is, is the promise. Now remember, the promise has been given to a, a children of Israel that are again being scattered and there are the exiles that are coming out and uh, this is a time at which there isn't much faith among the peoples of God and yet the remnant is still there. Uh, But this is the promise that a worldwide church will be gathered in. The Gentiles will come in to the church. And this has happened over the last 2,000 years. And we just got the most accurate numbers from Gordon Conwell Seminary in just the last couple of weeks. Uh, The 2023 numbers came out first time in 23 years, I think, or 13 years since they gave us a data point. And it is true that the percentage of Christians in the world increased to, at least those who call themselves Christians, increased to 34% of the world's population by 1900. And that, I think, is very significant. That, that the, the numbers of people who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ in some form increased from 120 to roughly I'm going to say 600 million by the time of 1900. Today, it's closer to 1.8 billion. However, this is a data point. We've seen a decrease in the number of Christians in the world since 1900. It's gone down from 34 to 32%. Not very much, but it's decreased just slightly in the last 120 years. But here's the big takeaway. And again, this I believe to be the most accurate number we're going to get And this is a fulfillment of this prophecy. There's no question in my mind that the agenda of Almighty God, the agenda of the Lord Jesus Christ has come to pass in our generation. And for this, it should just give our hearts so much encouragement. I don't think there's anything more encouraging in the world than this news uh, in terms of, you know, just what has developed in the last hundred years. Not to say that there wasn't great news that happened 2,000 years ago, but that there has been such progress in the establishment of the church around the world is really very, very phenomenal. But here's the big takeaway. The big drop, or the slight drop, I guess, is due largely to a large drop that occurred in the West. Christian adherence in Europe and North America as a percentage of the world population dropped by more than half between 1900 and 2023, from 21.9% to 10.5%. So, you've had a significant drop in Europe and North America. Remember, it was largely America and Europe that contributed so many of the Christians up until the, world, the year 1900. But now, it turns out, and this, again, very significant, the percentage of Christians in Asia, Africa, and South America increased from 6% to 21.9%. So, again, as... The West has decreased from 21.9% to 10.5%. What's really interesting is that the East and the South has increased from 6% to exactly 21.9%, which is where the West was 120 years ago. It's exactly the same ratio, which is really extraordinary. I don't think Gordon-Conwell Seminary planned that out in the numbers, but it turns out to be an exact shift 
the two world people groups have exchanged positions over the last 123 years. While the number of Christians as a percentage of the world population in the West decreased from 21.9% to 10.5%, the percentage of Christians in Asia, Africa, and South America have increased from 6% to 21.9% over that same period of time. So here's what happened. The two world people groups exchanged position. The South ascended while the North descended. The East ascended while the West declined. Moreover, Islam had increased its poll upon the world from 12% to 25% between 1900 and 2023, and atheists and agnostics increased from 0.2% to 11.1%, largely, of course, the apostates from uh, the Western world. So, brothers and sisters, this is exactly what Jesus had planned to do, that he would have a church that would be established from every tribe and nation around the world, that this was his desire, this is what he wants at the end, every tribe and nation joining in choir. And we're seeing it accomplished in our day, more so than at any other time in Christian history. That is, what's happened in the last hundred years is more significant than anything that happened in the previous 1900 years in accomplishing this particular part of the vision for the church of Jesus Christ around the world. So we ought never to think for a moment that Jesus has failed, that somehow his objective is not really happening. In the last hundred years, he's accomplished more than what he accomplished in 1900 years beforehand, except for the fact, of course, he embedded the faith in Europe and America. Praise God. And then that spread around the world in the last 120 years. So what will these do? What, what does the church do? What is the church? Again, why are we here? Why did you come here this morning? Why, why are we here this morning? We've come to see the glory of God and to declare the fame of Jesus. Because that's, that's what these people were planning to do. That's, that's the intent of the Gentiles coming into Zion. They're here to see the glory of God, and to declare the fame of the Lord. Now, we know what people do when they declare the fame of others. People are good with declaring the fame of somebody else. Every time you mention somebody's name, you're declaring something of their fame. You read the news, social media. What are they doing? People are declaring the fame of themselves. You hear a conversation going on. People seem to use the word I, me, and my a fair amount in the conversation. What are they saying? They're declaring the fame of themselves. They're thinking about themselves. They're speaking of themselves. They broadcast something of themselves. Sometimes people complain about conspiracies and evil and the devil and, and the fame of the devil and ISIS and Hamas and other people and so forth. But, you know, when it comes to Christians, when it comes to those who come into the church of Jesus Christ, we're not declaring the fame of me or you. We're not talking about each other. We're not talking about the evil that other peoples are doing. As a primary focus of our conversation and our thought, we're not declaring the fame of ISIS and Hamas and Karl Marx and Bruce Jenner and Elon Musk and Donald Trump. I'm just going through Fox News. The Kansas City Chiefs and Adolf Hitler. We're not declaring their fame. We're coming into church to declare the fame of Jesus. Who cares what these people are doing in the ultimate sense? They're either going to heaven by the grace of Jesus, or they're going to burn in hell, one or the other, but who who cares about declaring their fame? What matters more than anything else is that we as the church of Jesus Christ declare the fame of of Jesus. We've come in this morning to talk about what Jesus has done. He is risen. The first thing we said, amen? He is risen. And everybody said, he is risen indeed. You guys shouted it out with everything that was in you this morning. Jesus rules on the right hand of the Father. Jesus has won the great battle against the devil. Jesus will cast Satan into hell forever and ever. He's coming to judge the whole world. He redeems us with his own blood. He beat death for us. Hallelujah. Praise be to Jesus. I mean, we need, praise be to Jesus. Praise be to Jesus. That make you feel good? Say it if you want to. You know, praise be to Jesus, our victor, our Lord, our Savior, our King, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Feels good, doesn't it? 
We come together from every tribe and nation into this building because we just want to praise Jesus and talk to his fame. Don't, and don't be disrupted by other things. Don't let anything else crowd out. I know we, we deal with the struggles and trials and tribulations of life and the enemy and all that. I get it. I get it. But let's just push that aside for a moment and just say praise be to our hero, our champion, our victor, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise be to Jesus. He's the great unifier. We talked about that. He's unified the whole world into the church. Forget the denominations. Just for a moment. I've been all over the world. There are people believe in Jesus all over the world and never heard of the CPC or the OPC or any PC. They're just believers. They're all over the world. Amen. Hallelujah. We're all under the same roof. We, we praise the same Savior, Son of God, Son of Man, resurrected from the dead. We, we declare the same Apostles' Creed. We acknowledge it. We sing it. We praise Him for it. He's broken down the middle wall partition. We don't need any stinking wokest stuff. Who needs the woke? Amen? Who needs woke? Jesus brought us all under His cross. And the blood of Jesus Christ is spraying all over us. He brings a rain of perfect righteousness to the earth. Nothing better than that. He's Lord. He's King. All kings have bowed to him. All kings shall bow. The knee to him. Hey, Gandhi is dead. Muhammad is dead. Nietzsche is dead. Jesus is alive. And he's got a church. And he's been accomplishing his goal in building the church in every tribe and nation around the world for the last 2,000 years. He's accomplishing his goal. Gandhi won't. Muhammad won't. The humanists won't. Hey, they're already virtually dead. For all intents and purposes, humanism is dead. Nietzsche's been dead a long time. And his worldview is gone. Yeah, okay, we're still seeing some ashes floating around us. Humanism is more or less dead. But of the increase of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there is no end. Hallelujah. Move on to number six. The church will remain through the generations, a representation of the new heavens and the new earth already begun. This is my translation, my understanding of this. That, and we, we talked about this already, I believe that the new heavens and new earth, at least in a representative form, has already begun in the church. And that was expressed strongly in Isaiah 65. At least in a representative form, the church exhibits the new life and the everlasting life and the eternal life that Jesus came to bring to us. The church will never perish, her dear Lord to defend. The Third Reich lasted 20 years. Wonk, wonk, wonk. Isn't that true? They were out for a thousand years. They got maybe 20? It's over. Boy, you talk about a failure. But Jesus' kingdom continues. The kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Wherever there's righteousness, wherever there's peace, in our homes, in this church, wherever there's that sense of the shalom of Jesus upon his church, in this place or anywhere else around the world, and wherever there's the joy of the Holy Spirit, which is the quintessential thing, we'll get to that in just a moment, there is and there will be a continued growth of the church of Jesus Christ. Somebody wrote, I think it's my brother here, writes at the bottom of his emails, the church is an anvil that has worn down many hammers. Well, I love that. The church is an anvil that's worn down many hammers. You hammer away on the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In China, they've been working on that for a long time. What's happened? A church that at one time was 600,000 strong is now closer to 100 million strong. 200-fold increase since Mao Zedong came up with the great idea to persecute the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus always wins. He always wins. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants in your holy name, or in your name remain. It shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. And this is the seventh and final point in the message this morning, they will come to worship. From one Sabbath to another, 
they will come to worship. This is the end game for Isaiah as well as Revelation. This is the end game for all of human reality. This is it. They will come to worship. They will come from every tribe and nation. And here they come on the camels. They come however they're going to come. But they're coming into Zion. They're coming into the church. Why? To, to speak of the fame of Jesus and to glorify God and to worship Him from one Sabbath to another. This is the end game for all of human reality. To surrender first. To repent of that rebellion and that unwillingness to worship. So much of what it is to, to be repenting is to stop talking about yourself and to stop worshiping yourself and to cast the man-God and the me-God into the fire and say, I am coming into this building to worship God. And my life from here on out will be dedicated to the worship and the service of of the living God. My conversations will be filled with gratitude and praise and worship to the true and living God. It is to repent of not worshiping. It's to repent of being so glum and and so self-focused and so depressed about yourself. It's, It's to turn back to God and to see His glory to receive his salvation and to fall down before the cross of Jesus, receive his his forgiveness and and then spend the rest of your life praising Jesus for his great salvation that he's given to you. To fall down before him, to love and adore him, to be lost in wonder, love and praise. Is that you this morning? Are you lost in love? wonder and praise this morning are you falling down before him loving and adoring him this morning is that you are you still not quite there yet where are you with this have you come from every tribe and nation from the north and south and east and west and gathered into this building because you have been redeemed your your chains have been broken you have a sense that you no longer serve yourself you don't serve idols anymore You serve the true and living God. Your heart overwhelms with thankfulness and gratitude and a desire to just shout the praises of Jesus in this building as well as in your own homes every single day. That's the church of Jesus Christ. And they're coming from every place around the world today to worship Jesus, to be overwhelmed by the awe-inspiring nature and works of Jesus and his worship worthiness. This is the reason for all of this. And so, let me just take a moment and close with Revelation 14 because this is, Revelation is almost a parallel passage. Not just chapter 21, which we read this morning, but Revelation 14 as well. So go there as we end this morning. Revelation 14 and verse 6. Here we have the story of the three angels. And I want to go over this because this is the end game. This is the end of the story. This is how it ends in the church with the people of God. Three angels saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountain of waters. And there followed another angel, angel number two, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen the great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. 
So we end here. This is the everlasting gospel. I know that sounds strange because we know the gospel itself is that Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead on the third day, ascended to the heavens on the right hand of the Father. We know the good news. But here the, the angel is presenting the gospel or the good news this way. Again, sounds a little bit strange. Fear God, give glory to him, and worship him. Apparently, this is the greatest news in the universe. Angel number two is simply announcing that Hollywood has fallen, and Babylon's fallen, and America's fallen, or whatever worldly systems are falling. And angel number three brings out the most frightening message that could ever be communicated, much like what we have in our text today. That is, those who worship the beast, they will be burned in, with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of God, forever and ever. They'll have no rest, day and night. So that's what happens to those who worship themselves. That's what happens to people who worship the beast or the state or man. But the question for us is, who are you going to worship? Why are you here this morning? Why do we come here in this building? What are you thinking about right now? What did you plan to do this morning when you came to church? What's your objective for life? Why are you here? Why did you come here? We are worshipers. We're going to worship something, either ourselves or God. So the good news is that we are here to worship God, to love God, to worship Him, to find more reasons to worship Him, to understand more of His fame and His gloriousness. To hear about his gloriousness. We've talked about the last three to four weeks. I've been exhortations about the gloriousness of God. So I gave you all these reasons. And that's why you came in this morning. Because you wanted to hear more reasons. Why God is so glorious. Because that, that incite, excites you. That gets you, gets you attracted to coming more into this building. To worship God even more. Because you are a worshiper. And you've come to worship God. And God is worthy of your worship because the Lamb of God has redeemed us for the power of sin. And we've come in to realize the worthiness of his worship. And that attracts us. That's good news. It's good news because it's not good news to worship yourself. It's good news to worship God. And this, of course, is the truth as well. The greatest lie in the world is that the beast is worthy of worship. Or you are worthy of worship or the demon world, or the state is worthy of worship. That's, that's a big lie. Too many of us have imbibed that lie. We, we live in that lie. Man-centeredness, me-centeredness is the water in which we swim out there. No, 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 that's a big lie. Don't worship yourself. Don't think about yourself. Think about God. Worship God. Fear God. Give glory to God. This is the greatest happiness of the human soul. This is the highest reason and purpose for the creation of the the human from the very beginning is to worship God, to glorify God, and, and to enjoy Him forever. So we come back to the greatest happiness of the human soul. This is it. This is good news. This is glory be to God. Glory, glory, glory be to God. My lips shall greatly rejoice when I sing to you my soul which you have redeemed. Psalm 98, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Bring forth in song. Rejoice and sing praises. Why? Because we finally found the reason for our being. We finally arrived at why we're here. The greatest enjoyment that anybody could ever experience in life is to worship God and to see the glory of God and to respond in giving glory to God. To praise that which is not praiseworthy is a dud. You all agree with that? Praising that which is not praiseworthy is just a dud. It's inauthentic as well. You know it's inauthentic. Finally, we rejoice that judgment has come. Now, why that? These could be hard words, you know, from Revelation 14. Why do we rejoice that judgment has come? We sing Psalm 98, the top of our lungs here in this church, but you know what it's all about is, you know, God has come to judge the earth. 
And that's how it ends. And we're all like, hallelujah, he's come to judge the earth. Why, why, why do we sing Psalm 98? Why do we sing any of these psalms? Well, let me ask you this. In the ultimate sense, how many of you want evil to win? Like you just, yeah, I want killing babies to just absolutely win. I want the devil to win. How many of you think the devil should win? Evil should win. Adolf Hitler should win. Anything that opposes Jesus should win. None of us would say that. We absolutely want to see the reign of righteousness. We absolutely want to see Jesus clean it all up. Amen. I say, come, Lord Jesus, come and clean it up. That resonate with anybody? Come on down and clean this thing up. And that's what you're singing when you sing Psalm 98. That's it. For believers, this is the ultimate news in the world. Jesus wins and righteousness prevails all over the world. And forever and ever. Amen. And that's the way the story ends. All I can say is hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are so thankful. Oh, Father, what good news you've come to bring through Jesus Christ. He died for us. He rose again. He beat death. He overcame the devil. He brings a reign of perfect righteousness. He will bring evil to an end. No president, no king could ever do that but the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, we've come to worship him. From the north, the south, the east, the west, we've come in to worship him here. To join our brothers and sisters around the world to shout the praises of Jesus. That's why we're here. Oh, God, that we could do more of this. God, that we could do more of this just to glorify you more and to worship Jesus, our Savior, Redeemer, and King. In his name we pray, amen. Amen and amen. We come to the Lord's table now to commune with our Savior who is very much with us now. The Gentiles, they crowd into the church for what? To see the glory of God. And we have come here to see the glory of God. Do you see it? Can you see it? Can you see the glory of God? Where is it? Where is the glory of God? Here. Well, I asked that question and found a passage in John 11 that speaks to this very issue. So listen to this. This is where Martha believes in the resurrection. And, and she comes to Jesus. And she talks to him about it in verse 38 of John 11. We read Jesus, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. So Lazarus had been buried there for four days. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, she said to him, Lord, by this time, there is a stench, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. So there it is. That's it. If you would believe, you would see the glory of God. And then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me because of these people who are standing by. I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. This is the resurrection of Lazarus. And this is a manifestation of the glory of God. They saw it. The point is they saw it. Jesus said, if you believe it, you'll see it. And here, 
They, he did this for their faith in order that they would believe and in order that they would see the glory of God. So what does this mean? This is the reversal of 4,000 years of the curse of death. This is life. This is resurrection life. Everlasting life. What did Martha see? Life. That's what she saw. Life. So start believing. Believe. And you will see the glory of God. Without faith, you can't see it. If you don't have faith coming into this building, you're not going to see the glory of God in this building. You've got to believe. You've got to be a believer. Believe with the most wildly exaggerated expectations and hopeful anticipations that you will see a vision of the glory of God in your life, yes, and the life of others. Martha did not expect Lazarus to walk out of the grave that day. That's pretty obvious from the conversation she had. She didn't expect it. The resurrection was very hypothetical to her. She believed it because she wasn't a Sadducee. She wasn't sad, you see, about the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. She, wasn't, she knew she wasn't that. She was theologically aligned with the Apostles' Creed. She believed in the resurrection. But for Martha, it was a theological hypothetical. Where is it with you today? This is God we're talking about. Would he have left his son in the grave? Will he leave us in the grave? We're talking about God here. We're talking about Jesus. From everything you know about Jesus, what do you think would happen on that day that he said, Lazarus, come forth? From everything you know about Jesus, what do you think he would do? Believe, brothers and sisters. Believe what you've heard. Believe what you've read. Believe in the resurrection. Believe with a wildly anticipating expectation of what's going to happen. Believe today. I say believe today. And you will see the glory of God. Believe that God is glorious. Believe that God's glory will be revealed. Believe it. Say, I don't see much of the glory of God. Believe that God will reveal more of his glory to you. Believe that. Believe that God is glorious and believe that God will reveal more of his gloriousness to you. Resurrection begins today with each and every one of us. New life, everlasting life is here, it's now with us. You have walked out of the grave. I've walked out of the grave. Once I was dead, now I'm alive. Once I was blind, now I can see. This is a new reality for me. It's a new reality for you. Think about the blind man. Remember the blind man who was healed, cast out of the temple by a whole lot of blind men in the temple. The blind men cast the blind men out of the temple. Jesus heard that he'd been cast out of the temple. What happened? He found that guy and he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, you have both seen him and as he who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. So here's the point I want to make as we come to this table. To be seeing for this man is to see the glory of God. That he himself could see was that he could see Jesus, the one who helped him to see and thereby he could see the glory of God and the work of God, and he could see the glory of God in, in, in the face of Jesus Christ who had exhibited the power in his life. The blind man could see Jesus. That's the point I'm saying. A blind man could see Jesus. And as God has opened up your eyes such that you can see Jesus today, that itself is the miracle, that you can see him. And thereby you'll see the glory of God and the power of God in your own life. Once your eyes are opened, it's all glorious from here on out. That's my point. See, once, think about a blind man. Once his eyes are open, even the physical realm, everything is glorious. 360 degrees, 724s. Think about the blind man. Now he can see everything is glorious. 
And now as your spiritual eyes have been opened, everything is glorious all the time. So, brothers and sisters, he gives us his life. Today is resurrected life. He brings us living bread from his own body and blood. He administers to that to us through his spirit and through the means of grace. He is the living Christ. He's alive right now, sharing his life with you and me. We live because he lives. We live off of his life. And he shares his life with us now. And as we have his life, as we are the Lazaruses, walking, talking, experiencing life, we will see the glory of God as Lazarus did that day. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, these truths are amazing, stupendous, impossible for us to completely understand. But even as the blind man talking to the Pharisees, I don't know much about anything, but one thing I know, once I was blind, and now I see. And then he saw Jesus and worshiped him. And that's what we do now. We can see him. He gives us the life. He gives us the eyes to see him. God, we pray by your spirit, you would help us to see a vision of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ at this table right now. Give us that vision right now that we would understand more of the gloriousness of our Savior Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.